0: You know, when I was your age, go ask your mother. I know you don't like it. It builds character. How many times do I have to tell you? I'm not just talking to hear my own voice. Hello, listener, and welcome to Dadages. I'm your host, Chad Hagel. And if you are looking for some fatherly wisdom for your career, your family, or any other aspect of your life, then you've come to the right place. If you want to learn more about Datages, find additional content, submit questions or feedback to me, or if you want to know if that mental picture you have of me after hearing my voice matches my real face, visit Datages.com. Thanks for being here. And before you listen to our podcast, please listen to your father. Hello, and welcome back to Datages. I'm Chad Hagel. Wait a minute. Something just happened. Did y'all notice? No? Let me tell you what it was. We all just upgraded to Datages version 2.0. And you didn't even have to download an update or reboot. So what does it mean to be part of Datages version 2.0? Well, we've grown the team here at Datages. The MVP of the original Datages team, our technical editor Youssef, continues with us as we grow. And we've added resources to our production process, including an executive producer, social media managers, a copy editor. As I said in our very first Datage, surround yourself with people who are better than you are at what they do best. And our enhanced Datages team is committed to bringing you even better programming to take Datages to the next level. Some things you can expect going forward include greater connection with our guests from our episodes that we have, which we've renamed. Chatting with dads. That's chatting with a D, of course. We hope to give you even greater insights into their lives, including hashtag family life photos, and you'll have an opportunity to see and hear more from our guests outside of the podcast itself through our Instagram and YouTube channels. I also want to share with all of you an important shift I'm making today, and it involves you. This shift comes in response to a challenge raised to me by Jeffrey Small one of our early guests here on Datages. If you didn't listen to the Jeffrey Small interview, I encourage you to make that your next listen after today's episode. Anyway, Jeffrey brought something up to me over lunch at True Food Kitchen a couple weeks ago. He said, I've really become an avid listener of Datages, but there's something that takes me out of the moment whenever you do it during an episode. It's when you stop and refer to those of us tuning into the podcast as listeners. I feel like more than a listener. I feel like a part of datages and the community you're building. Hearing you refer to me as a listener just feels so passive and detaches me from the experience. Wow. Good point, Mr. Small. Jeffrey always has great insights and advice, which is why I recommend you all go back and listen to his interview. Jeffrey went on to apologize that he was coming to the discussion with a problem, so to speak, but no proposed solution. He just raised the matter with me so I could take it on and think about it. So I did. I posed the question to my production team, and they agreed a change is warranted. We brainstormed and bounced around some ideas. I, I did some research, and I thought about the questions several times on several different occasions. And then I did what I always do. I let it go. I put the problem down and went on with my daily life. And then just a few days ago, while I was in the middle of composing this particular episode. I woke up on a Sunday morning, and it came to me. Writing today's episode actually inspired the solution to Jeffrey's challenge. Here's how. Today's episode is a business-focused episode, as you're about to find out, all about investing and about positioning your business for investment by others. And I appreciate all of you making the investment in me and in Dadages. Your time is valuable. I value it. And I'm really honored that you've chosen to spend some of it with me. As we talk about investment in this episode, I will be introducing you to some strategies for early-stage investment in companies. Often when the principal of a venture is just getting started, that person will tap their own network of closest connections to provide seed capital. This is commonly referred to as friends and family investment. And boom, there it is. Friends and family. It's the perfect fit. Many of you have been my friends and family for a long time. And you've been gracious enough to come along with me on this journey through Datages. And those of you whom I've not met in person before, I'd like to consider you new friends and family also. It's impossible not to be in a circle like Datages, where we share so much. So I thank you for coming along. I thank you for your investment in Datages. And I thank you for being part of my friends and family as we enter Datages version 2.0 together. So let's try this out. By now, Dadage's friends and family, yeah, that feels right. By now, Dadage's friends and family, you've all heard somewhere along the way, it takes money to make money. Sometimes we hear a saying like this so many times that we just start to take it as a given. But Do you ever really stop to think about this statement? Do you think it's true or false? Would it surprise you that I have an opinion? Well, I do. I think it's categorically false. I actually consider this statement to be a limiting fallacy, just like the ones I talked about in our fourth episode entitled, Anything Worth Doing is Worth Overdoing. How is it takes money to make money a limiting fallacy? One, because it's not true. It's a fallacy, as I'll explain in the next few minutes. And two, Because believing this statement can quickly become an impediment to achievement, perhaps even an excuse for not pursuing financial success. If you honestly believe that it takes money to make money, then you might be stopping yourself from achieving your financial goals if you aren't sitting on a pile of money already. There's a further implication of this fallacy that if you have money, you're going to make more money. This is most certainly false. Fortunes are made and lost every single day. If you want to prove this notion, look no further than lottery winners. According to the website creditdonkey.com, yes, that is a real website. Look it up if you don't believe me. We've posted a link on our bulletin board. And how could I resist referencing a website called CreditDonkey? Anyway, creditdonkey.com cited a study of lottery winners in Florida great. Here we go bashing all of my fellow Florida men again. And guess how many lottery winners in the study went flat broke within five years? 70%. 70% of all lottery winners have spent every dime of their earnings within five years. And the study found that about 1% of lottery winners actually declare bankruptcy every single year. And losing a fortune is not a privilege reserved for lottery winners. I'm also reminded of what I heard one time about the wine business. Do you know the best way to make a million dollars in the wine business? Start out with $2 million. My overall point is that the connection between having money and making money is incredibly blurred. It's at best a correlation and certainly not a matter of causation. And friends and family, I want you to abandon this concept altogether because I don't think it serves you and could stand in your way. If it sounds like I'm setting you up to pitch you on some sort of infomercial jockey seven-step program to personal wealth and financial independence, don't worry, I'm not. So why am I talking about this subject and where is the datage in all of this? I'm so glad you asked because I've finally arrived at today's datage. It takes credit to make money. I know, just changing the word money to credit in that saying doesn't exactly represent a stroke of genius on my part, but let me take the next 20 minutes or so to give you a thorough explanation of this datage and show it to you in action. And by the end of this time, I hope that you'll see that the importance of this subtle but meaningful distinction is obvious. Let's start this discussion with a story about what may be the worst use of money I can think of, Gambling. When I was in college, I used to go to Lake Tahoe frequently to ski. Part of the experience was always going to the casinos on the South Shore and gambling in the evenings. It added an extra element of entertainment and excitement versus simply sitting in the cabin and drinking beer, which is probably also not the best use of money or time. Gambling in college was fun. I'd wager a little money, pretend I had some sort of strategy behind what I was doing, Stretch my money out to be able to play for a few hours, and every now and then I'd win a few hundred bucks and go home excited with Tales of My Conquest. Have you ever noticed that people who gamble are very quick to brag about their winnings, but seem to completely overlook their losses? But as they say, they don't keep building casinos in Vegas because of all the winners. Vegas is an entire town built on losers. You ever stop to think about that? I've only met one person, one person, who seems to have a gambling sixth sense and legitimately finds a way to consistently beat the house and come out ahead. It's my very close Israeli friend, Oded Piled. His game of choice is roulette, and he's what you might call a table whisperer. I've watched him wander through a casino for 30 or 40 minutes, carefully examining every table. Studying the numbers on the display screen to see what numbers have been hitting. Looking the croupiers up and down. Did you know that's the term for a casino employee who operates a roulette wheel, by the way? Croupier. It sounds quite sophisticated. In fact, I found that there's a movie by the same name from 1999 starring Clive Owen as the title character. Full disclosure, I haven't seen it. But looked it up and it has a 95% score on Rotten Tomatoes. We'll put a link to the trailer in the bulletin board. Maybe we can all have a watch party sometime. Anyway, back to Oded. He has a gift. Like I said, it's, it's uncanny that when we were traveling together in Egypt and went to a casino in Sharm el Sheikh, I bestowed upon him the nickname IRF, Israeli Roulette Force, because he was on a mission to conquer the entire Middle East one roulette table at a time. And what about me? Well, I don't really gamble at all anymore. Despite my earlier comments, I actually really enjoy Vegas, at least for about 48 hours max at a time, but I just go there for entertainment, food, and fun. That and for my annual pilgrimage to the ICSC real estate conference in May. And why don't I gamble anymore? Well, in college, like I said, I could win a few hundred bucks in an evening and be totally excited energized from my drive all the way back to the Bay Area. As I got older and had some financial successes that were derived from a different sort of gamble, gambling on myself and taking calculated risks in the real estate business, I came to realize that I needed to win a lot more money at a casino to feel any kind of rush of excitement or a sense of victory. And as it goes, if I hoped to win big, I'd have to play big, really big, irresponsibly big. That's the way it goes. Over time, you have to be willing to wager as much and probably a lot more than you hope to win in order to have any shot at those winnings. And this is where our gambling story comes full circle and ties back to today's datage. It takes credit to make money. Making money in business any business requires taking a risk. As I said, I don't need to gamble in Vegas because I gamble in real estate every day. The major difference is the odds. In business, you can exercise skill, experience, judgment, relationships, and many other tools to shift the odds of winning in your favor. There's no bet in a casino where the odds are better than 50%. Hopefully, you're good enough at your business to make your odds of success far greater than 50-50. And if not, you're in the wrong business. But the fundamental similarity between gambling and business still applies. The risk-reward proposition. What I came to realize is that to achieve the level of financial success and returns I am seeking from my business, I would have to risk far too much of my own money to get there. And this is true at every level. Obviously, in the beginning of my career, I needed every penny I could find just to keep food on the table and a roof overhead. And still today, at the level I wish to achieve, the number and scale of projects I wish to pursue, if I used only my own money, I'd be taking risks that are far too great and putting myself in an unhealthy risk-reward scenario, where I'd be taking existential risks in every day of my professional life. That's no pathway to health and happiness. We may all have to take an existential risk in professional life at some point to reach success, particularly those of us who choose to be entrepreneurs. But we should all strive to minimize those moments, especially later in life when risks to career and family, family, are too great. Existential professional risks are for your 20s. Here are two existential risk stories from my 20s. When I graduated from Stanford in 1998, they were practically handing out stock options for dot-coms along with our diplomas. I followed the trend. While I was applying to med school, I joined a startup as team member number four. That company originally called Vitality Web Systems. And as a side note, I still have the placard with that company name from our very first office in Mountain View, California that company, went on to become GetFit.com. The first dot-com boom was truly the Wild West, and we were chasing investment like every other startup. Work all night, make capital pitches to investors all day. That was the Silicon Valley way of life. Now, when I say it takes credit to make money, credit can come in many forms and has many different meanings in different investment circumstances. At that time in Silicon Valley, having a couple of Stanford diplomas, a catchy name and a heartbeat was about all the credit you needed to get your early investments. It was a low bar. But as we learned, that bar escalated quickly once you took the first money. The pace of the dot-com boom was unprecedented and credit was measured by an ever-changing set of variables. First, it was impressions. Just driving eyeballs to a website. Impressions were web currency 1.0. If eyes were hitting your website in large numbers, you had credibility. And you had credit to go get money to build your business. Everyone was willing simply to assume you would figure out how to monetize all of those eyeballs later. As things progressed in the late 90s, standards began to change. The bar moved from impressions to unique visitors. How many different people were coming to your website? Presumably, you could only make a certain amount of money someday in the future from each individual person who came to your website. So visitors became the currency of the web. But hold on, maybe that wasn't quite right either. It wasn't enough for someone just to stumble across your website and land there. The notion of stickiness was born. How much time were people spending on your website, and how often were they coming back? These factors could be measured by the number of page views or by the number of minutes spent on a website per month per user. Stickiness became the currency of the web, which I suppose makes sense actually if you consider the web in purely arachnid terms. Stickiness is key. Ask any spider. Ultimately, though, As it was with many things in life, at the end of the day, everything came back around to money. The investment community wanted to see that your website was actually making money somehow. You had to prove your revenue model. The credit to obtain money from investors became tied to demonstrating current revenues and projecting future revenue streams. Every internet entrepreneur began to find ways to make some money— and then draw a beautiful exponential revenue growth model that looked like the flight path of a rocket ship. Spend and grow. Spend and grow. Just give us money, lots of money, and watch us grow. But then something terrible happened. Somewhere around the time that we were busy partying like it was 1999 and panicking about the world coming to a halt due to the Y2K crisis, someone introduced a dirty word into the internet venture capital space. The P word. Profit. Wait, internet companies are supposed to make a profit? That wasn't in the business plan anywhere. Where did that come from? Obviously, I'm being facetious. Ultimately, every for-profit business endeavor is exactly that. For-profit. Every company has to make money at some point in order to be a going concern. Just ask the IRS. Demonstrating profit potential should be the appropriate way to derive credit for an early stage company, and that should drive the access to capital for that business. In the internet space, there were several key ways to demonstrate profit potential. As I mentioned earlier, a good business plan was key. I was the business plan writer for GetFit.com. This is one of the most valuable tools I developed in my time there. I think back to our recent interview episode with Ina Coleman. In which she talked about how valuable critical thinking and critical writing skills are in business. I certainly put every bit of my own liberal arts education to work in a high tech startup, and I honed those skills as I went along. As I often say, my experience in the dot com space was like going to business school, but somebody else paid for it. And boy, did they ever pay for it. Ultimately, we blew through over $6 million. Aside from spending a lot of money, what made for a good internet business plan? Obviously, they vary significantly. But here's a basic outline for a business plan for a technology company. Datage's Business Plan Writing 101. Get out your pens. The problem. Start by identifying some problem in the world you want to fix. It doesn't have to be revolutionary or complex, per se. Sometimes the simplest, annoying, little persistent problems can lead to the best technology businesses. Like, I can't sell my junk. That's eBay. Or, I can't find a date. There you can take your pick, really, of any internet dating site. Next, quantifying the market. How big is the market for what you're developing? Don't try to claim that your target market is everyone on the planet. That's a good way to lose credibility instantly. But you will really be challenged... If you narrow your market so far that you can't quantify a customer base in order to scale the business, if your entire target market is defined as German speaking men with pet iguanas, you're probably not defining a large enough audience to scale your business. Next item the unique or innovative solution. What's the big idea? What did you come up with to solve the stated problem in a way that hasn't been done before? And here, one tip I would give is that some of the very best technology solutions are not revolutionary. They are evolutionary. Sometimes just doing something incrementally differently or better than everyone else is enough. It can be better actually because you aren't necessarily counting on a massive behavioral change from your customers to adopt your product. Next, the technology development plan. How are you going to build your amazing new technology? Are you trying to build something from scratch? What technologies are you incorporating into your product? Technology entrepreneurs of today have a distinct advantage over those of us who are building internet-based offerings in the late 90s. Today, there are a lot of components or modules of technology that can be adapted and incorporated into new products. There's really no reason to start from scratch, and you can build things much faster and cheaper today. Next. Competitive landscape. Who else is doing what you're trying to do? Don't try to claim no one is doing this. If no one is doing it, or at least something similar, there's probably a reason. It might not be a very good idea. This is not always the case, but you're far better off identifying some sort of competitive landscape and some analogous companies to help prove the existence of a market. The key is comparing and contrasting what you are doing to show differentiation from everyone else out there. Next component, barriers to entry. So you have this great idea. Once you get started, how do you keep Google or Apple from just copying it and putting you out of business? There's no absolute answer here. Obviously, there's not much that Google or Apple can't do given enough time. Their programming and development resources and the amount of money that they have are almost immeasurable. The key is to communicate a strategy that puts you in a position that it would be cheaper and easier for a much larger company to buy you rather than copy you and try to put you out of business. That brings us to IP. IP is intellectual property. This is the part of what you are developing that is proprietary. Do you have something that you can trademark or patent? Just understand this part isn't easy at all. It takes a really long time to get a patent, years, and it's expensive. It requires very specific legal expertise, and ultimately a patent doesn't protect you by itself. Anyone on the planet can infringe on your patent. You have to be willing to defend your patent and basically sue anyone who does infringe on it. The value of the patent is only as much as you are willing to fight for. Here's my patent story. The original founders of Vitality Web Systems, including me, filed for a patent entitled Method and Apparatus for Establishing, Maintaining, and Improving an Exercise, Nutrition, or Rehabilitation Regime. The patent basically covered any such system that was synchronized with the internet for tracking and prescribing such a regimen and synchronizing with various devices. The list of companies infringing on that patent includes, uh, I don't know, Fitbit, Peloton, Nike, Apple, you know, the little guys. But when the company folded, we never perfected the patent, which means it's worthless today. Had anyone properly advised us that the patent was in our names as individuals and that we could and should have scraped together the money to complete the patent process despite the downfall of the company, I wouldn't be talking to you today about sourcing other people's money for investment purposes. I would have never needed anyone else's money again. Oh, well, lesson learned. Perfect your patents. And speaking of money, the revenue model is the next critical part of a business plan. How does your business make money? What is your cost of customer acquisition? Where are you finding your customers? What is the cost of goods sold? Can you demonstrate that as you grow, your unit costs go down, your margins go up, and your profitability increases as a result? All of these points are tremendously essential questions, and your answers need to be well thought out, and most importantly, credible. Next, sources and uses of funds. In this component of your business plan, you have to address the actual investment structure. How much money do you have to raise? How much are you raising now? What structure are you proposing? There are lots of options, such as Series A investment or a convertible note. The details of those are beyond our discussion here today. Will your current investors face the impact of dilution down the road? Dilution is essentially the reduction of the ownership percentage held by an investor due to the company raising more funds at a later date. And then, how are you going to use all of the money you raise? How much of it is going to build your technology? How much of it is going to overhead, administration, and management? And how much is going to marketing and advertising for customer acquisition? Generally, investors want to see their money going to productive uses that will grow the business, not to fat salaries to pay your team members. And speaking of the team... That's the next critical component of your business plan. What are the critical functions required to make your company successful? Technological development, executive leadership, business development, marketing. What of those components are covered by the original founders or the core existing team and what positions need to be filled down the road? You have to make sure your team is compelling as it relates to the needs of the business. And sometimes, in addition to your executive leadership inside the company, it is important to supplement that skill set with advisors who are affiliated with the company. Even through equity ownership, sometimes, but aren't on the payroll. Building out a strong advisory board can be a critical component to the success of an early stage company. The final component that is important for all business plans is an exit strategy. Once you build the business, How do you and your investors get paid back at the end of the day? Usually, this relates to your sources and uses of funds. The more money you're proposing to raise over the life cycle of your company, and the longer you have to keep spending money in order to make money and achieve maximum profitability, the more you better be looking to get out of the endeavor in the end. Is your company poised to go public and return value through the sale of stock on the open market? Very few are it's more likely that you'll sell the company at some point. In some cases, the company may just continue to operate as an independent entity long-term and return operating profits to investors annually through dividends. Most often, this only works if you're raising a limited amount of money and not diluting your investors greatly. Otherwise, there's just not enough income each year to spread around to all of the equity holders. So what was our exit at GetFit.com? How well did our business plan play out? As I mentioned before, we spent $6 million, and ultimately, we sold the technology produced by the company for a fraction of that. I can tell you that living and working through this time period in Silicon Valley was equally rewarding and challenging. As the target kept moving, our initial VC investors kept changing their objectives for our business and forcing us to artificially manipulate our business model to chase the currency of the week. Remember? Impressions, visitors, stickiness, revenue, profit. We simply couldn't keep up with the changing objectives, and our business model vacillated tremendously, undermining any real progress. And when we pushed back on the constant changes, what did our investors do? They installed a new CEO, an investment banker type from Wall Street, with no real tangible operating experience or leadership skills whatsoever and no real connection or chemistry with the rest of our team. Our company became his learning curve. We grew fast and we shrank even faster. As the chief operating officer, I was forced to fire 36 people in one day. At age 24, that was the hardest day of my life. And then I fired myself and moved on to a new career. But that's a story for another day, actually for next week to be more precise, we'll continue our discussion regarding it takes credit to make money in next week's episode of datages. If you join us then, you'll hear my second existential risk story from my 20s, also known as how i got into real estate development, and we'll discuss the importance of credit in business as it relates to the real estate sector just as we did today in the world of high-tech startups. And since we've spent so much time talking about the internet today, I thought I'd leave you with a dad joke about the internet. Name a famous explorer from the past that has been largely forgotten. Internet explorer. No, but seriously, here's something you might not be aware of. Do you know what the most commonly searched term is on internet explorer? Google Chrome. Yes, I just doubled down on my dad joke. That's why I get paid the big bucks around here or no bucks at all as the case may be. I guess I should be looking for some investors. Maybe I'll go write a business plan. Remember, Dadage's friends and family. Dad may not always know what he's talking about, but he sure can sound like he does. Thank you for listening to Dadage's. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to visit dadages.com and subscribe to the Dadage's podcast to get notified for future episodes. You can rate a review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Why? Because I'm your father and I said so. Just a little respect is all I ask for. I put a roof over your head and food on the table and what do you do? No, tell me exactly what do you do? Because I'm doing everything, I'm paying for everything. No, get back here, get back here right now.